Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. Well, this is our 50th episode of the Blister Podcast, so to mark the occasion, we thought it would be fitting to bring back on the podcast our very first guest, Jed Yeiser. Jed is the senior ski designer for both K2 Skis and Line Skis, and if you haven't already listened to that first podcast, you should, because you'll learn a whole lot more about Jed, his backstory, and his path to becoming a ski designer for Line and K2. This is also a pretty ideal time to be talking to Jed, since there have been some pretty massive changes recently at K2 and Line. Many people have been wondering what's up with K2 in particular, so we talked to Jed about the current state of things at K2 and what the future looks like there. There are actually four distinct parts to this conversation, so if you have a short attention span, you might want to check the show notes for this episode on your phone or on the Blister website, and you can skip around as you wish. But if you're listening to this intro, I am certain that there's something here for you in my conversation with Jed. So in part one, Jed and I briefly talk about backcountry safety, and Jed shares a bit about two very impactful experiences of his own in the backcountry. Jed and I then talk about K2, what's going on with the company, and we talk about several of Jed's favorite skis in the lineup. From there, and after a few tangents, we talk a bit about Line's new sick day series of skis, and then in part four, we conclude by talking about Rosignol's announcement this week that they are moving into mountain bikes. Jed and I discuss the challenges of successfully cross-branding into areas outside of a company's core competence, and then we offer some thoughts on the Rosignol Soul 7 and plus-size tires. So yes, it's safe to say that this was a wide-ranging conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. And now, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with the senior ski designer for K2 Skis and Line Skis, Jed Yeiser. Jed Yeiser, how are you? I am doing great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We are um, we are talking at the super normal hour of, um, well, my time, 1.45 in the morning. Um, yeah. 12.45 uh, in the in the Seattle area, if if my exactly. my brain still works. Cool. You and I launched this whole podcast thing. Um, actually, at, <laughs> at K2 headquarters in Seattle, that was episode number one. So, that was uh, episode number one. Here we are, fifty episodes later. <laughs> and 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 the best thing about this, Jonathan, is, is I think this means that I've been on the podcast one more time than Andy. Oh, it's true. so and until until you go back through again, I've I've got one more podcast than Andy, and, Andy and I'm going to cling yeah. to that. Yep, it, we're talking about Andy Hitjohn, who uh, is a ski designer now at Armada. Um, I think Andy, you know, I I just expect I'm going to get inundated with texts and emails now because he's going to want to catch back up. Um, oh, first thing I do tomorrow, or honestly, probably after we sign off, is uh, is text Andy and let him. <laughs> Let him know that I've I've one upped him. I mean, he's you know he's a he's a pretty incredible guy, and he's beating him guy. at anything's <laughs> a win. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it was funny because on the the very last 
podcast we did, um, I did with our outerwear editor, um, Sam Shaheen, who brought up this anecdote uh, that I had frankly completely forgotten about. But uh, the first time he and I ever talked, apparently I called him at midnight and we ta- we talked till two in the morning, and so this one we're getting going. It's now one forty seven a.m. So uh, I guess not a lot has changed in six some years uh, at Blister. So anyway, whatever. Yeah. Um, just to get things kicked off, um, you know, I know. Um, well, I know that you know that uh, I recently had a a fairly bad. Um, accident um in the backcountry and i know you um had some thoughts about this and and that you yourself um a few years ago were um were involved in a in a pretty heavy incident and that um because we've been talking about these things around here lately i wanted to give you a chance to maybe talk a little bit about that event or some of the lessons learned that day but um Anyway, the, the kind of the floor is yours on that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's first and foremost, I'm super, super, super glad that, that you're doing OK and you, you got out of that. Um, and, and I haven't had a, a chance to listen to, to episode two of the podcast, but definitely, you know, listening to, to episode one really kind of resonated with, with me as far as, as lessons learned, um, with, with the accident that, you know, you're referencing, um, as well as just, you know, lessons learned in the backcountry um, in the years before that. And, and after that, where it's, you know, it, anything can happen and you can, you can make the best, most educated decisions, available to you and, and, and things can really go wrong in a way you don't expect. And, um, you know, you can be super conservative about risk management and you can be pretty liberal with risk management, but, um, you're really, you're never safe. And, and that's, you know, that is what it is. And it's, it's in some senses liberating and, in knowing that like when you go out, it's, it's all really up to you, um, or your group. Um, and it's also pretty, pretty scary and, and harrowing and, you know, in, in the accident, I, I, I can't talk in, in super, super detail about, you know, that, that accident, just cause I don't want to speak for people that, that don't want to be spoken for. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, we got really, really lucky, um, in that there were about, you know, 10 people in, in a class four slide. Um, and, and everybody lived, there were some pretty serious injuries and and we needed to heliovac somebody out. Um, but I think all of us really learned from that. And, and the biggest lesson we took away from that was, is that you just really never know. I think that the, second biggest lesson that we learned from that, um, which, which doesn't, I guess, have as much of a, a, a parallel to, to your, your story is, is just communication between groups. Um, that, you know, communication is key and, and it can save lives. And we got really lucky that, that some communication between groups didn't cost a life, but, um, 
I think if, if he replayed the scenario we were in another 10 times, there, there would have been fatalities five out of those 10 times. Um, and it's, it's tough to talk about. Um, we got really lucky. I'm very glad for that. And I think every single one of us that was involved in that accident um, is not going to make that same mistake again. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. Not to say that like nobody that was in that group will ever set off an avalanche again or be under an avalanche or be under a group that was in an avalanche, but just communication uh, between groups that, that that was, you know, something that was, we all could have done better. We all know we could have done better and, and we'll never not do again. Yep. <clears throat> so, yeah. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I mean that I, I don't remember off the top of my head how much we go into that in the kind of the part one of our coverage of what happened in our debrief of, um, the incident I was involved in on July 9th, but, but that is, um, that is literally the kind of single takeaway for us is that, um, is that communication element. And like, I don't want to be going out in a group, um, that is sort of, um, silencing, like self silencing information. It's just, it's, it's the worst possible thing we could be doing when we're out in these scenarios. We got to, we have to be talking. Um, Absolutely. We have to be talking. And so, um, yeah, that, that honestly, as we've obviously continued to talk about this among our crew, um, and we talk about this, I think, even more in the second part of the podcast, um, that, that, is this, that is the number one thing. Um, and that is the yeah, number one thing that our group is going to be doing different. Um, so, and it's like, yeah, it's, it's definitely colored a lot of my experience where it was, you know, not, not long, I suppose like six or eight months after that accident happened, I was up on Mount Adams and we were skiing the the North Ridge and conditions really weren't what, what we expected them to be. Um, and, and I guess the, the difference between the, the North Ridge of Adams and, and the accident I was in was it was really one group as opposed to managing multiple groups. But, um, you know, it, it, it really, I spoke up in a way that, that I, I'd never spoken up before. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, I think everybody else in the group was thinking the same things I was thinking, but it was, was sort of one of those things where like, Hey, this isn't what we expected to find. And we're not really in a place where we can get out and we need, we need to change our route. We need to, to manage this. And, um, that, that descent on the North Ridge of Adams was probably the most scared I've ever been on skis, but, um, where it was just snow was super rotten, um, for a, you know, a 3000 foot descent and we were in camp and then watched a naturally triggered slide, basically just completely flush the line that we were planning on skiing. Um, and, and that was just, it was really good at reinforcing the, the communication lesson where it's, you know, I, I think I was probably the first person to speak up, and I think everybody else in the group that I was in on on that trip was feeling the same thing. And and as soon as as I mentioned it, there was consensus in the group. But you know, you never really want to be that person that that tells all the other guys that 
you're not comfortable because mm-hmm. um, you don't want to be the guy that, you know, wants to, to kind of chicken out. Um, and, 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 you know, that was a really good lesson to where it's like, you're not the only person feeling these things. And just airing that concern sometimes can be the difference between building group consensus to make safe, conservative decisions or the safest, most conservative decision that's available to you and and a decision that nobody's really comfortable with. But nobody also really wants to be the the person that says I'm not comfortable with it. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, and I think I mean we'll we're we'll move on here, but I I really do think like I think the takeaway here is like this is going to start and really should affect who we are going out into the backcountry or into wilderness areas with because absolutely if, because if you're out there with somebody and you're like man I don't feel like speaking up because so and so is going to be pissed about this it's like well cool like that's somebody I don't want to go out into the backcountry with. Absolutely. Like you, you got to go out with people who have the same level of risk tolerance as yep. you. Yep. Um, and it's like not to go back to this North Adams story, but like we were in base camp and um, watched this, this avalanche flush the line. And another guy hiked into camp and was like, oh, did anybody ski the North Ridge today? And we were like, no, it's not safe. Like it just got flushed. And this guy basically told all of us that we were um, uh, what's the best way to put this? I, I think the way he phrased it was pussies. Um, and it was, it was pretty insulting. Um, and he skied it the next day, uh, which was, was great. He, that, that person who I will not name, uh, has since died mm-hmm. in an avalanche related accident. Um, which is, is super unfortunate, but I think it, it, it's just informative as far as like choosing who you go out with and, and their level of risk tolerance. And I'm not saying that this person died because he was cavalier, but he had a much greater tolerance for risk than, than I personally have. Yeah. And when you have a greater tolerance for risk, there's a greater tolerance for accidents. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I mean, just super important stuff uh, to keep talking about and keep, uh, I mean, literally having the same conversations over and over. I mean, we have to continue to pound this stuff, I think. and um, Absolutely. And that's just about being, that's part of the responsible behavior element. And um, so anyway, um, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And, um, and I'm grateful to have... Uh, <laughs> made it out of my own incident so we could do this once yeah, again. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so. so Well, so transitioning, I mean, let's get into, I want to talk about sort of what's going on with K2 and I want to talk about what's going on with line these days. Um, but to get it started, I mean, certainly it is the case that I think a lot of skiers out there have kind of just been wondering like what the hell is going on uh with k2 um you know and we're reading reports um and there's a quite a bit of speculation and so i figured um who better to go to than than somebody who is there and um and can sort of weigh in on like you know what's new at k2 what's different at k2 um what's what's the report from uh from ground zero (laughs) yeah well i mean 
and I know we've talked about this in in the past. I'm I'm certainly not. I think the way I put it before was high enough on the totem pole to really give you a, a super detailed look. But what I can say is is that I we're in a really good position. We're not going anywhere. Um, with all the the chaos that's been been going on, or at least perceived to be going on, I I think it's one of those things where it's a lot more concerning from the outside looking in than it's been on the inside looking out where, um, you know, we spent the, the past few months and, and past couple of years doing the things we need to do. Uh, you know, it's like my job is to develop great product and, and develop product that, that the market needs. And I think we've done a better job of that in the last, you know, two years than we've done, Previously, and I, I think you'll see that at SIA this year um, with with really consolidated product lines, with with great graphics and great new products. Um, but what's going on is basically we were we were part of Newell. Well, we were part of Jarden originally, um, and then Jarden was bought by Newell Rubbermaid, and Newell Rubbermaid bought Jarden not for the very small part of the Jarden business that was the ski business in K2 and, and vocal and, you know, marker and DeBello and ride and, and all of the companies that are associated with K2 and vocal. But, um, you know, Newell bought Jarden for Yankee candle and for Mr. Clean and ACE playing cards and, and the, the far more lucrative businesses and Newell's focus was really on focusing on their, you know, top 20 retail customers, which was, you know, Walmart and Target and a lot of these big box chain stores um, and, and K2 and Vocal and really just the ski business didn't fit into that at all. And that's not to say that Newell ignored us as businesses, but I, I think all of us knew that once Newell bought Jarden, Newell was going to try and get rid of us because it just didn't make sense for them. Um, and they weren't interested in our business and we needed people that were interested in, in us as a business and interested in the ski business. And so we were bought by a, a private equity firm named Kohlberg private equity firms are there to, to make business make money. Um, and, and they expect to do that and they wouldn't, have bought us if, if they didn't see a way of making money. Um, and, and that's, that's their end goal, but they bought K2 and marker develop vocal as a standalone business because they feel it can make money and because they feel like they're valuable companies. And, and I think that's, that's a really good assessment. Um, you know, I we'll, we'll see, what shakes out the ink still drying on that deal. But, um, you know, it, it seems like they're really willing to invest in the business. They've done some really cool things with, um, they bought Bauer from Nike. I don't remember when, but, um, they invested really, really deeply in, in Bauer's R and D. Um, they, they built a lacrosse business for Bauer, um, and, and really made Bauer, a strong standalone business. And, and I would expect to, to see the same things done with us or, or that's, that's certainly what I hope. Um, and I think all signs point in that direction where they, they see the value in 
in the the K2 sports, all of our brands, um, and, and the marker develop vocal brands and, and they, they're confident that those brands are strong enough and have competitive product to, to continue being competitive in, in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also, again, this is probably going to get me into trouble, but what else is new? I, I would expect them to invest in some, some summer businesses, um, and bring those summer businesses into that product or brand portfolio, if you will. Um, just because, you know, the, the K2 sports and the, the MDV portfolio is pretty winter centric and there's, there's a lot of, of capital that you need to basically borrow to build product for the winter, um, that you you don't get back if, if you need to borrow that capital in the summer, um, that, that a summer business would help out with. And, and also, uh, you know, we're all snow-based businesses and that that's hugely weather dependent. And so bringing a summer business in would, would just make the whole portfolio much more stable. Good overview slash summary, I think. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah well hopefully done. I don't get fired. Um, <laughs> well, Let's keep it moving um, because it is now after 2 a.m. Uh, <laughs> I, well, it's yeah, that's that that's just fine. <laughs> um, so let's hear from you know K2's senior ski designer. Like, help orient listeners in. I don't know. Let's give you like. Let's see if you can do this in like two minutes. Oh boy! How, how does somebody? You know, somebody who maybe sort of is thinking, yeah, K2, I, I think I have lost a little bit of a sense of what they're sort of up to, who they are. Uh, in terms of the line and lineup of skis, how do you guys internally think about, um, you know, what are, what are you doing? Who are you appealing to? Where Where is the focus? Hmm. Um that's that's a difficult question to answer and it's difficult because you know i think k2's brand identity's been a little bit fluid um in in the past few years and i think we've got a lot of good things coming and i don't really want to want to steal i th- those things also need to be timed Um, so I'll, I guess I'll, I'll speak to it more as just how I feel about it as I can't really separate myself with company, but I, am not going to like give you any brand slogans that we're coming out with or, or, or overall focus. Um, you know, K2 has always been kind of in, not kind of, it's, it's been an innovative brand. We started out as, as kind of rebels and running against, the grain and in a lot of different ways. Um, and certainly when we, we really became the largest ski company in the world back in the, the late, you know, two thousands, um, we had some incredible product and we had some incredible marketing that, that worked along with that where we were different. Um, and I think the, the theme that's really carried through with K2 throughout the years is, we create product that, that lets people, all people, um, of all different abilities enjoy doing what they're doing. Skiing is just fun. Like, let's not take it too seriously. 
Um, we had a brand slogan for a while, which was serious fun, which for me, I think was a, a great brand slogan, but skiing's fun. It's not about like getting that huge objective. If you want to do that, great. Um, it's not about like setting the fastest time on a course. If you want to do that, great. We have skis to do that too, but it's about creating product that just lets you have fun and enjoy what's going on. If I'm like, dude, I just don't know what K2 is up to these days. From your line, the 1718 line of skis, you would want to say to 1718, you mean stuff that's in stores this fall or stuff? Yep, yep okay, that's coming yep. in. That's coming online here in like any minute now. Like, yep. wh- are we focused on like? Look, we're really proud of what we're doing on the touring side of things or we're really really proud of what we're offering on the skinnier sort of on peace side of things or is it like look we're building skis and making skis in every category of skiing um and we are you know trying to compete and be competitive in every category of skiing that i mean it at that level of like the line the lineup of skis um, yeah. What what should people know about where K two is sort of right now, or or as we go into this next season here? I I mean uh, I, I, again I'm going to get in trouble, but um, you know I think that the biggest thing is 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 seventeen eighteen skis. Our biggest push this year was on the the new iconic skis and the new pinnacle skis. And K2 has always sort of been known for having a really large sweet spot. And that's, that's something that we really, really value and that we want to, to continue because it's, it's important. Um, I think that's gotten a little bit diluted and, and, and we've made some mistakes product wise where we've in the past few years and I won't, well, okay, I'll, I'll name a product that I designed. Like the the iconic eighty five was a great ski um, in a lot of conditions, but it didn't have a high top end. Mm-hmm. And I think some of some of the K two skis have really lacked a really high top end at like high speed through through crappy snow. And and our biggest focus this year with updated constructions on the pinnacle skis and then completely ground up redesigns with the new iconic skis was to give those skis that really high top end while retaining as much of that sort of intuitive versatile feel that's associated with k2 where we don't want to alienate people like that there are people that are, are coming to stores and they want a k2 because they know how a k2 feels and and we don't want to alienate those people, but we also really want to make skis that that appeal to to the really high performance person as well. And I, I would not say that we haven't not made those skis, but we haven't done a very good job of making those people our focus, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um and so, you know, certainly with with the updated constructions on on the pinnacles and um the new iconic series that was that was our number one focus and i think that's something that you're going to see out of us in the future um you know it's i i did all of the new the new iconics and those are skis that i'm super super proud of and and will stand behind 110 percent um in that 
you know, like I, I come from a racing background and, and the number one, the first thing that was on those design briefs was these skis need to initiate well. The second thing was on those design briefs is these skis need to have really, really, really good edge hold and confidence on, on hard snow, um, when carving. And, and I think we, we knocked those out of the park. It's, Again, this is going to get me into trouble. I'm saying that too much. You are saying uh, that. But too. like, uh, I'll, I'll stop saying that. Okay. But like the <laughs> the first the first couple round the, the the first versions of the the pinnacle skis like they were fun skis, but I personally never really gelled with them. Mm-hmm. Um, where I I just I felt like I I couldn't push them as hard as I really wanted to, and. And the updated constructions of the the 95 and 105 really addressed a lot of those concerns. I mean, my, my best day last year was skiing with with an old college friend of mine at at Vail on an updated 95. And all day, I kept on sort of looking down at my skis and being like, "Wow, I'm on a Pinnacle 95. Like this is." I, I didn't think that I'd be able to push this ski this hard and that it would respond as well as it is. And like everything that we tried to do, we're doing. And it was, it was really, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't the engineer for that product. It was a guy named Cody Lowry, who's an awesome engineer and did an awesome job with those. But it was, he did exactly, exactly what he was, was tasked to do, which was just improve the, the top end while retaining that, that large sweet spot that, that those pinnacle skis had. Um, so I, have we gotten you on updated constructions of the one Oh five and 95 yet? Nope. Okay. Well, let's fix that. Um, cause it's, yeah, it, they're, they're awesome skis. Okay. Um, yeah, we skied, I think we had, we reviewed the pinnacle 95, but I mean, that was three years ago now, three or four. Um, it wasn't four. It might have been three. Three. But yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah. So um, something to check out. Um, I did want to talk about, um, and in part, this will be fun because we've I think spent a bit less time um, on this podcast, maybe talking about some skinnier skis. Um, but yeah, I know. I mean, we were, you know, we spent time on this K2 supercharger um, that was 76, that is 76 millimeters underfoot. Um, And I think talking about that ski, and then I want to talk a bit about the the iconic 84 Ti, um, which was a ski we had a lot of fun on this spring. But anyway, I mean, do you, do you want to start by talking about this supercharger um, the, the 7,600 foot supercharger. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So the, the supercharger is, um, I, I, I love that ski, but I think a a good way of, of starting out talking about it is, is really how that ski came to be. Um, which is, you know, the, the, the whole charger series of skis is really driven by Europe where there's a much larger market for, sort of race inspired skis. Um, and, and I think we were really fortunate in that 
you know, I, I designed the bolt and the charger and the velocity before this. And those were some of my first skis and those were great skis. But just as I was really becoming a, a mature ski designer, um, a guy named Stefan Stankala, who was on the German national team, um, sort of became a larger force in our, our European department or our European, um, sort of organization. And I come from a pretty strong racing background, not as, as strong as Stefan for sure. But, um, you know, basically the powers that be both in Europe and, and, and here in Seattle gave Stefan and I the green light to design, you know, four, three or four skis that, that we really thought would, would hit the the performance points that we needed and we were also sort of given the autonomy which is really important to make those decisions ourselves um so we we came up with with the waste widths we came up with the target markets we came out with the, t- the target performance and we were really stefan and i um were were the two most important sort of data points uh tester wise which is not to say we didn't have a number of other people person uh, people testing and and that their their test feedback wasn't important but it was sort of like Stefan and Jed you two know this skier and this type of ski more than anybody else in the organization and and make the decisions you need to make to to make the skis you need to make and and that was hugely empowering um, and really, really gratifying. I think the biggest lesson that I learned, um, from, from those skis, from the chargers was, was a, a flex distribution lesson in, in sort of where a ski needs to be stiff, where it needs to be soft and, and the relationship between the stiffness and the, the forebody and the aft body of the ski and how that relates to the mounting point and where the waist of the ski is, um, and, and because it was really, you know, sort of Stefan and I leading the charge on that, I was, I was able to experiment with some things that, that I hadn't experimented with before and, and learned a, a lot of lessons that carried into the iconic 84. And I, I know, you know, we'll deal with that in a bit, I, I hope. Mm-hmm. Um, but that supercharger for me is, is just, it's, it's an, unbelievably fun ski where you get that on on prepared slopes and it it, at the top of the turn it bites and starts drawing you into the turn in in such an immediate and confident way um where there's really no doubt what's going to happen for the rest of the turn where it just it draws you in and brings you into the turn in a way that, that gives you such confidence in the ski. Um, and then in the apex of the turn, it's, it's still there. Um, you know, we've, we've struggled selling that ski in the U S for sure. And, and I think that that ski has been a little bit of a battle where people don't, don't associate K2 with like a high performance carving ski. And, and you know, that is what it is. It's unfortunate that ski is an unbelievable ski. And I think that ski competes very, very favorably, if not better than, um, you know, a lot of the stuff from the traditional race brands. But 
you know, I can't tell people what to buy. I just would encourage people to try that ski. Uh, I think of all of the products that K2 makes, that's, that's one of the most competitive products that, that we make. Hmm. If, if, if it helps, I mean, the, the, the two skis that we had, and I, I know the market's changed a little bit, but the two skis we had benchmarked as, you know, the industry leaders and, and the skis that we wanted to compete against were the, the, the vocal race tiger. Hmm. Uh, they had some name for it. It was the, the, the long term, I think the race tiger L or the GS one, which is a, a fantastic ski. And then the, the Redster GS. Um, and those were of all the sort of race inspired skis, but not race skis mm-hmm. that, that we tested. Those were the ones that really stood out. And those are the ones we benchmarked against. And mm-hmm. those are the ones that we, we think were really competitive mm-hmm. against. Yeah. So, so let's, let's get a little wider and, um, I want to talk about this, the iconic 84 TI. Um, yep. I think you had said that some of the things you learned in the development of the supercharger, um, sort of found their way into the design of the iconic 84 TI. Is that yep. fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think like, let's, let's go back quickly and I'll, I'll try and keep this quick. Um, to when I, when Stefan and I were working on the supercharger, um, we wanted the ski to initiate really well. And so we kept on making the, the four body, the ski softer and softer and softer thinking that, you know, okay, if it's a softer four body, it's going to to bend more easily. It's going to draw you into the turn. And, um, that, that worked out poorly to, to put it mildly. And, and so I just spent a lot of time looking at, sort of the, the dynamics of, of turning and, and how, how we weight skis and, and where your pressure goes. And, and when I just slowed down and sort of took a step back, I, I realized that, you know, you've got more ski in front of you than you do behind you. And that the stiffer, the forebody of the ski is the, the more readily the ski is going to be able to transmit energy from, you know, your boot and the binding to the forebody of the ski where you're really starting to initiate the turn. Um, and, and that sort of change in, in flex profile was, was dramatic. Hmm. And, um, and, and that made all of the difference for the charger skis. And so when we were redesigning the Iconics, I, I took those lessons, uh, as far as stiffening up the forebody of the ski and, and also some lessons I learned from, sort of how to, how to make the side cut work with a stiffer tip um, into the Iconics. And so the, the, the flex distribution on the, the Iconics is really not much different than it is on the Chargers. Um, certainly the Iconics are, are a little bit softer than the Chargers by maybe you know 5% or so. But um, I think that a, a lot... You know, the reason that iconic 84 TI skis the way it does has everything to do with the lessons that I learned, you know, when it comes to flex distribution in the chargers. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Another, you know, and again, we, maybe part of the reason I was so impressed or, and or surprised by 
that iconic 84 ti was i i mean this has been a thing that i've been kind of trying to talk about and communicate for pretty much ever on blister but (laughs) um i often think that there is kind of a mistake when we're looking at skis particularly in kind of the 80 millimeter wide kind of 80 to roughly 86 millimeter wide like or 80 to 86 millimeter underfoot um uh category when we start when we start calling these things all mountain Mm -hmm. and i think that that like so i don't know maybe it's a primarily a feature of where i ski but I often think of like when I when you say all mountain, I'm thinking like all, all of mountain. the mountain. Yep. And a lot of times, frankly, skis that are shaped like the iconic 84 Ti, that to me looks like a fat race ski, and that is not the sort of shape that I want to be on in steep, punchy, grabby, weird snow, right? And um. Yep. But I have to say, like, kind of undermining my point here. And so, like, I've been on record. Like, Solomon, uh, they had a ski, the, the X-Drive 8.0. Um, yep. That's an 80. Well, you know, and 8.8, too. Well, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But in this case, specifically talking about the X-Drive 8.0, that was a ski that, honestly, I was like, this ski is a beautiful carver. It is a, yeah. it works really well on piste, but I'm sorry, like this will kick your ass in moguls. The, the shape of it, it's like, go look at like, um, uh, an Olympic mogul ski. They're just straight. Yep. Like this, this should not be touted as like an all mountain ski. And yet, like every time I go skiing, whether that's like in Argentina or whether that's in Colorado, I'm seeing people on these skis quote unquote, all mountain skis where I'm just like, dude, that ski is not making your life easier when you're coming along a mogul run or when you're, when you're trying to ski punchy off piece snow, like get that thing on a groomer. And so I don't know, like I, I find like, again, I know it's like, well, idiot, that's just marketing language about all mountain. But I'm still trying to reconcile, yep. and, and I, this this really long-winded roundabout way of saying this is that iconic 84 Ti actually was one of the few skis that kind of looked like a fat race ski that I thought worked pretty well, actually all mountain. Um, and so there's kind of two two I guess points or questions there. One, I don't know, like props to you i guess for that but secondly like i don't know if you have thoughts about why are we still marketing these effectively fat race skis as sort of all mountain skis because i feel like i mean the iconic i think does that pretty well frankly i think another ski that we just reviewed on the site um little bit little bit wider but the the head monster 88 um especially in the longer lengths um, the new, the new head monster 88 is a ski that we thought worked quite well, um, as a, as an all mountain ski. Um, mm-hmm. but I guess as a designer or an engineer, like, I don't know, can you, can, do you get what I'm getting at here? 
um, I'm going to blame the hour. I, I do, and it's interesting to, to hear you say that because, I mean, one of the things that we talked about, I mean, it, for literally days, weeks, and months on end as, as we were conceptualizing this new Iconic series was what does All Mountain mean and mm-hmm. and does All Mountain mean different things at different waste widths. And, and that's kind of where we came to was if you're skiing an 84 wasted ski, what does all mountain mean to you and where are you actually using that ski? Um, and, and our focus really on, on that, that I, that all of the new iconics was to really improve the on piste performance of that ski. And it's, it's great to, to, to hear you say that it works you know, all, all over the mountain. But our focus on those skis was really improving the on-piece performance yeah. because most people that buy an all-mountain ski are not skiing all over the mountain in the way you're talking about mm-hmm. it. You know, they're, they're skiing prepared slopes that certainly degrade through the day and you need something to deal with variable conditions, but they're not spending a lot of time off-piste and we need to design a ski that works well for that and i think a lot of the things that that you're feeling on that iconic and and excuse me if if this gets a little bit too preachy or marketing speaky but like k2s have always been known for having a very large sweet spot and that's that's something that's really important to us and that sweet spot means that it's going to work well and feel comfortable in a lot of different conditions Okay. That did sound too preachy. A little bit. Um, yeah. You're, it's okay. You're still not a product manager yet. Maybe by the end of this podcast, you will have you will have graduated. Uh, there's no threat of me being a product manager. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, and we can. I mean, certainly. Like, I think the thing that we liked the most about that um, iconic 84 Ti was um, was its top end, was its stability, its speed. And as you've said, I mean, even at even and very much end of day when the groomers were absolutely beat to hell um, and we were basically skiing like pushed around sort of weird mogul runs, um, that ski felt really good. And I mean, we've it's not that hard. We've skied a lot of skis that have a big top end. Um, but we really felt like, I mean, there is also, and we were, we were a being this with the, um, iconic 84, um, yeah. is a lighter ski. Um, and honestly, we didn't really feel like there was this, you know, well, the, the, the TI version was this way more demanding, way more punishing version. It did definitely have a bigger top end. Um, yeah. but we didn't feel like, oh yeah, no, like we have to only put like really advanced skiers on the TI and we can sort of direct everybody to the other one. Like we felt like, you know what, this, this isn't hard to ski. Um, but we could go push it really, really hard. So it's, yeah. I mean that the 84, the glass version of the 84 TI is, is probably of all the K2 products that I, I designed last year, the one that I'm most proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, and that like the 84 TI certainly does have a higher top end, mm-hmm. but that 84 is ridiculous ridiculously fun um and i think it's got such a broad spectrum 
and if you if I had perfectly prepared groom slopes and all I wanted to do was cruise, I would probably choose the glass version over the, the, the tie version just because it's so much quicker and, and, and easier than the tie version. I mean, as you said, the tie version is not difficult and it's no. not like there's a huge difference, but the top end of the, that glass ski, the iconic 84 is way higher than you would expect and it's it's just a snappy fun ski hmm. so maybe, maybe that is where we were finding the 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 differentiation between the skis to really come together is when we were skiing the really beat up groomers um yeah and, and that's still like, flying like yeah. that's where and that's we were like, like yeah. the tie ski is going to feel way better yep. than than that glass ski yeah um it, 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 you know, there, there's a reason we put Tietnall in, in, in the iconic 84 TIs. We wanted that higher top end. Yep. Um, but that glass ski is, is really impressive. And, and, um, for me, that was kind of interesting where I expected to, to just want to ski on the, the tie version. And I, you know, we were, we were doing final buy-offs on those skis in, in Chile last August. And, I wanted to spend more time on on the glass version than the tie version, and we were on on groom slopes at that point. But it was, you know, it was just energetic and snappy, and we weren't going super fast and mobbing through, you know, chopped up stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, and and we can get into this a little bit later. I've also started skiing a little bit lighter on my feet, and I think hmm. that ski rewards that a little bit more than the tie version. So, hmm. um, wow. Switching things up in your old age. Well, yeah, yeah. It's that's a that's a very. I mean, man, that's like a whole topic for another day. Um, be, because, like, I think that I personally am having more fun than ever on. Yep. Like lighter, some lighter stuff, and yet, like. It's like, well, I'm go from reviewing like a ski we'll talk about here in a minute, like the sick day, the line sick day 104 or the line yep. sick day 114. And then the next ski I might review is like the head monster 98 or like the, ex- like as literally as heavy exact. a ski as you get in yep. the category. And to be honest, I full disclosure, like. I still have a big appreciation for both types. Um, yep. And it's just fun. I mean, like when I'm getting on a Monster 98 or 108, it's like, okay, we're now going to go ski literally the heaviest, stiffest ski in the category. And you yep. know and you know what to do with that. Um, yep. And it's fun. But, um, you know, when it's like, okay, I mean, I still get real particular about... I don't like things that are too light. I don't like things that I think are, you know, are overly tapered, um, you know, or unnecessarily tapered. There's, I thought you loved tapered. I, I mean, yeah, it turns out, no, I don't. But, uh, you know, so there's, <laughs> there's still are complaints about that. But I think like if when the shape, frankly, get the shape right. And, and if you yep. do, and if there's, if it's a little bit of a lighter ski, but there's some pop in the ski, you switch up your style and, you can go have a lot of fun in, in those, on those things too. So, um, I think given my job, 
<laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like if I just if I just was out skiing and making my own buying choices, I don't know how much I would um if my quiver, my personal quiver would be looking terribly different these days. But um but I think I definitely have like a, more of an appreciation. Maybe a few years ago I would have been quicker to dismiss the stuff. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, where it's it's you've got a more of an appreciation for for a different feeling ski. Yeah. Um, anyway, and I, I don't know. I mean, that's that's just another like I think one of the reasons why I think skiing is inherently interesting always is. If you used to be that skier who just liked the straightest, stiffest stuff ever, well, you can do that for a while, and then maybe you're like, well, it's a different challenge if I get on uh, a softer ski, and you're going to approach the mountain differently. Or if you used to come on the sort of softer, more center-mounted stuff, go to a more directional, heavier, stiffer ski you will approach the the mountain differently and and your ability to shift that up as a skier is just it's you're you're turning the sport into something different absolutely yeah anyway um so i maybe that's just a roundabout wave i'm not just going to accuse you of getting soft <laughs> i appreciate it <laughs> you're you're welcome um talk to me keeping this moving talk to me a little bit um because we're going to move here in a sec. I want to talk about line, but um, yep. talk to me a little bit about, I don't know, like the future of K2. And I mean near term, like in the next year or two, do should we expect to see things moving in a similar di- direction? Are you, do you think we're going to be surprised um, at some of the things that are going to be rolled out I don't really know how to ask the question, but I'm curious about the future. I mean, surprise is, is a difficult question for me to answer just because I'm, I'm in the trenches. So, it, you know, it's hard for me to say if anybody will be surprised by, by anything. I've, I've certainly been surprised by the performance of some of the skis that, that will be unveiling um, at SIA this year. And, and I think and hope that, that the rest of the market feels that way. I, I think as far as what those skis are, you know, if you've been paying attention to what we've been doing over the past few years, it's, it's, you should be able to draw some, some pretty good conclusions as far as what skis will be coming out with. But, um, you know, our, our product group right now is firing on all cylinders. Um, we're, I'm biased, obviously, but you know I think we're we're coming out with with better product than we've come out with in in years, and we're doing so with a consistency that we've we've really never done in the past. And I'm I'm hugely optimistic about where we're headed. Um, that you know I I I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't believe in what I'm doing, and and I really believe in the skis that that we have and I believe in the direction that we're going and, um, and I'm excited, you know, I'm, I'm excited to have another conversation with you in, in four months when you get on some of the new stuff. Um, and, and I, I'm excited to hear what everybody else thinks. Um, but yeah, I mean, our, our product group is, is, is 
move in the direction we want to move. Um, I think K2 is getting really streamlined. We're doing a much better job of, you know, as I mentioned before, our brand identity has been a little bit fluid over the past few years. And I think we're doing a really good job of, of consolidating that and, and communicating a really clear message. Let me try this again, as, as the senior ski designer. Yep. If you were for, and this is subjective, right? Like it's just, it's, it's your, just a subjective question or a subjective answer. But if you personally had to pick one word or like one category and I were to say okay you personally of the stuff that's coming out that's just sort of on piste focused of the stuff that's coming out that's kind of say for lack of a better word free ride focused or all mountain focused and then like of what's happening on touring like for touring skis you get to pick one category where you are personally like most excited or, or ready to go put this stuff up against everybody else's collections on piece, yeah, off that's... piece touring. Oh, well, that's, that's tough. Cause I don't, I don't want to give too much away. Um, that's... so I'll, I'll, I'll have to, I'm going to restrict myself to stuff that's in stores right now. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm going to go with the charger series. Okay. You know, I think, and and part of the reason I'm going to the Charger series is I think they're really underrated. Um, and, to, and just to clarify, so that's the on piece skinny skinny stuff. That's the on piece skinny skis, where you know I, it, it, nobody out there is making a, a a bad ski, but I think our skis compete. All of our skis across the board compete really favorably with the competition. I think nobody expects the performance of a narrow waisted pieced K2 to be what those skis are where most people are looking at the heads and the fishers and, and the Razzies and the vocals. And, um, I think anybody that gets on like that supercharger that you guys have is, is going to, to really be blown away. Okay. And, and I guess I'm going with those narrow skis because I, I think it's unexpected. Okay. You know, I think the, the iconics are another, really good place to look but um people expect k2 to make really good quote unquote all mountain skis and we dealt with the all mountain thing earlier in the, the podcast yeah. k2 is not known for their narrow piece skis um and they should and we should be okay so um moving over to line yeah um so first of all we know there are some of the stuff that's coming back that's unchanged. Um, the the Pescado, um, the Mordecai, the Bacon, um, these skis are all just coming back, coming back, right? Yep, new okay. graphics. Yep. Um, you know, Eric Eric designed all those graphics, but yeah, yeah. And then skis are unchanged. So the I think the biggest thing we want to talk about here is the the new Sick Day series. Um, yeah, and we have. We have posted, I think, to date so far, just um, kind of a first look uh, and flash reviews of the Sick Day 104 and the Sick Day 114. So um, full reviews of those are still um, in the works. Um, uh, But I wanted to talk to you about those, um, I guess, 
I guess spoiler alert here is I talked about in my flash review um, of the Sick Day 104 um, that basically I was viewing that and I, I mean you and I actually I think disagreed a little bit about this but to me, that represented represented a bit of um, there was some some similarities and family resemblance between the Line Tourist One Hundred and Two, yep. um, which we were big fans of, um, a lightweight, dedicated touring ski, and then also mm-hmm. we thought that there were certain elements. It's almost like I think we said, or I said that it's like if you took a Line Tourist One Hundred and Two, and you know it had a baby with the line supernatural 108 a much heavier yep. directional ski you might end up something getting something like the the sick day 104 and and i very much mean that as a compliment um yeah. i think you I, you shied away from the supernatural 108 comparisons um it's it's well I, I mean, I guess I, I shied away from those comparisons looking more at the, you know, the mechanical data of the skis less than the overall performance. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't know that we ever got you on the, the sick day 102, not the tourist version, but the, nope. you know, the, the inline version where that, that 104 is, is is very close to that 102. Um, it's got less taper in the tip and tail, Yay. and and it's got a completely different layup. Where I I got rid of a glass <laughs> layer and and moved a couple different glass layers around. Um, but the flex profile of that 102 and the 102 Tourist is very similar to the flex profile of the Supernatural 108. The 108 is obviously much stiffer. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sick Day 104, if you look at, at purely mechanical data, is much closer to the the Sick Day 102 and 102 Tourist than the Supernatural 108. Mm-hmm. That being said, I would not disagree with you in that that Sick Day 104 has a higher top end and you can push that really, really hard in a way that you can on that Supernatural 108, but it's still maintains an element of sort of playfulness um and you know i i know i mentioned before when we were talking about k2 about me skiing a little bit lighter on my feet yep and and i think you know i i was far from the only data point on the development of that that sick day 104 but that's going to be like my my inbound ski this year not the supernatural 108 where i can push that ski ridiculously hard yep. and and I do need to be a little bit lighter on my feet yep. but I can still get away with it and and um and it's it's just I I don't know I'm I'm so thrilled with the way that ski turned out yeah and I think so. that's exactly I mean you can you can just people can go read my flash review on the ski but that's exactly what we have said and I'll be kind of fleshing that out further in in my full review but that's exactly it. I mean, we were mobbing on that um, 186 centimeter sick day 104. Um, myself, yeah. Sam Shaheen, um, and the thing about it is, it's exactly right. Like, you definitely have to stay lighter on your feet than on the like supernatural 108. But there yeah. is a poppiness in that sick day 104 
that just makes that really fun. And it's if it's like doubling up moguls, you know, or you're if you're modding exactly. into a mogul field, it's like, oh crap. And it's like, well, just boost, you know, yeah. like get in the air, find a find a landing spot if it's in a trough or on a, on the top of another mogul, and and you'll be fine. Yep. Yep. And yep. um, so again, like there would be certain applications or if I was just skiing certain mountains or skiing certain mountains with certain, a certain type of, with a certain group where it was just about absolute nuking, then sure. Like I'd rather be on a supernatural 108. It's, it's got, it, it just has more st- inherent stability at speed. Um, yep. but that's super na- or the, the, but it's not a huge, it's, it's not, you know, it, it's not, a huge difference, you know, and it's, I, I realize I'm delving into bike speak right now, but like I, I ride an evil following and I mm-hmm. think the evil following is a pretty good comparison to the sick day 104 where it's, yeah, you can find the limits and there, there are ways that like you can ski the ski or ride the bike where it doesn't work well, mm-hmm. but you're hard pressed to ever find a situation where it doesn't work and you can't have fun on it. Yep. And, and that's, that was really the focus of the development is, is just make a ski that's fun, no matter where you are or how you're skiing, make it fun. So, um, let's talk quickly about the sick day one fourteen. Um, yeah. Another Jed Yeiser pro model, another Jed Yeiser pro model. Um, yeah, and that is, I mean, it sounds like the ski that you personally are maybe resonating with more even than the 104. Yeah, I mean, I, I've spent more time on the 114 than the 104. Um, and, and the 114 has been in development a little bit longer than the 104. Um, I'm touring on the, the 114 a lot. Hmm. The, the 114's got a much lighter core than the 104, but it's also got a, a heavier glass package on it. Huh. Um, and that ski for me is, is especially here in the Northwest where you get really deep snow. Um, I don't that 114. I just, I, I struggle to find the fault with it and I'm, I'm biased, but it's like in, in deep snow, if I want to do more like high speed, long carve turns, it does what I want to do. If I want to break the tail loose and, and ditch some speed, it has no problem doing that. And then you get on cat tracks and it's a fun ski to just rip groomers on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly it's not going to, going to carve like, you know, that K2 supercharger, but it's, it's just such a well-rounded ski, um, and, and I can push that so hard. Um, you know, like with, with the 104, I feel like I, I need to be light on my feet. Whereas the 104, I feel like I can, or 114, I feel like I can be light on my feet if I want to, but I can also really drive the tips and, and kind of be an idiot. Um, so if that makes any sense. So have you spent most, if you, if you have been primarily touring on the sick day 114, I'm going to guess you've been touring on the 180 centimeter. Um, I've actually been touring on a 188 sick day 114. So the original, um, the original sizes we had for the 114, 
were 188 and 178. Okay. Um, and so we did all of our development in the 188 length and then decided to move up to a 190 okay. and a 180. Okay. Because I, I so far yeah. have only skied the 190. Um, yep. Our reviewer, Luke Kappa, is has been touring on the 180, but I'm just curious whether you were sort of talking about when you're like, man, I can push the, the no, I mean, for, for me, like a one eighty is, is I don't, I, I wouldn't, it's it, I, for all intents and purposes, I'm touring on the one ninety, yep. and it's, it's, it can be a pain in the ass on the uphills, especially if there are, there are kick turns. Yeah. And that's like the one ninety one fourteen is a big ski or the one eighty eight one fourteen that two yeah. people in the world have. Um, <laughs> but you know, when I'm skiing the kind of stuff that I want to ski on a ski that's that big, I want a larger ski. If I want to ski that's better on the uphill, I'm going to go to something much shorter, um, and probably much narrower. Yeah. So, okay. um, and that's, yeah, stuff you'll find about soon. So last question on the, on the new sick day series, just again, from a engineering point of view, were you most interested in or excited about with that line? Was it the materials? Was it the shape? Um, was it the sort of weight to performance ratio? Like what about that line in your view kind of stands out from an, from an engineering or materials point of view? Man, I got to choose one thing. Um, I mean, I would say weight to performance, but that's that's really too easy. Um, you know, I, I, everybody's telling a weight to, perform, to performance story. Um, to me, it's it's the flex distribution and the way that the flex distribution changes as you get wider through the skis um, to, to be better tailored for the sort of snow types that are being used in. And um, flex distribution or... Yeah, stiffness distribution, however you want to look at it yeah. or say it, is from a designer standpoint, that's the best tool we have to really control the pressure distribution, um, you know, on edge or or even riding a flat ski, and and so that's the most more than than overall shape, more than you know your side cut, more than rocker. The flex distribution of the ski makes the largest impact on the performance. And I feel like through through the whole sick day line from the 88 to the 114, we've made really, really, really good choices that we've tested extensively to, to tailor the flex distribution of the ski to the way the ski is going to be used to the kind of consumer that's going to want that ski. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Um, Not the sexiest answer, but you asked an engineer, so you got an engineer's answer. <laughs> I did. Um, <laughs> switching gears. Um, let's talk about, we're going to wrap up here in a minute, um, which is good because it's now 3 a.m. Uh, yeah, I was about to say, we were going to try and keep this like 45 minutes, right? I know, you talk long. I blame you. I, 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 barely, uh, I barely said anything. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> no. Um, I wanted to ask, this is a big announcement this week, um, that Rosignol, 
a brand you may have heard of, um, is I have heard of them. Yeah, is going to be making mountain bikes, and I just was curious. I know you love bikes. Uh, you love mountain biking. We've talked about this a decent amount, but um, I just was curious. Um, on the, on the one hand, many years ago, um, K two uh, used to have. There used to be K2 mountain bikes, but I just was curious what your reaction was to that news um, that, that Rozzy's making bikes. And, um, you know, I had raised this question in our, when we kind of, you know, broke that news. Um, I was curious whether we might see any of sort of the large ski manufacturers kind of following suit, um, getting into the, the mountain bike game. Anyway, thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I found out about that Rosy news because I uh, I opened Blister and, and sort of saw that article, and, and my first reaction was sort of like, huh, um, it, you know, I, if you look at other ski brands, and I'll include K two in this, that have really tried to branch out into different sports, they've not been super successful, and I don't think that has anything to do with the quality of the product. I think it has a lot to do with just brand recognition and that like people that want to play tennis don't necessarily want to play with a ski brand's tennis racket. Um, people that want to bike don't necessarily want to bike on a ski brand. People that want to play golf. Yes. K2 made golf clubs at one point. Um, don't want to, you know, play golf with a ski brands or with a, a, a ski brands golf club. And I think it just has to do with, with consumers looking at, at a company's or a brand's core competencies. And, and I think consumers can be pretty rigid in their perceptions of what a brand is good at and what they're not good at. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it sounds like felt is, is doing most of the development for Rosie's bike. So I have, no trouble believing that the the Rossi bikes are are high performance bikes. I've not ridden one, so I can't comment on that. But um, you know, I think it's going to be an uphill battle. It'll be really really interesting. I could see the Rossi bikes being very successful, especially in the the French market, um, just because there's so much brand loyalty to Rossignol in France, mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, I, I think it makes a lot of sense for, you know, a, a ski resort that does bike business in the in the summer as far as opening up rental programs and, and just having that all go through one channel. Um, you, you know, we'll see. I don't – even if the bikes are great, I don't think that Rosignol bikes are going to take over the, the market anytime soon. Just because most consumers are going to see a Rosignol bike and, and say, oh, well, that's a ski brand. Like, I'd rather ride a Specialized or a Santa Cruz or an Evil or a, a Kona or a Transition because those are bike brands and the bike brands know what it takes. Um, I just They're fighting an uphill brand battle, I guess, is, is all I think. And that has, I would assume the product good, but who knows? Yeah. It's, it that's quite, I mean, it's interesting, right? Like we've seen, I think we see this most frequently with like outerwear where, yep. where brands are like, Hey, we're a big, you know, we're a big respected brand. And, and, uh, 
and we're going to we're going to start just getting into the outerwear thing and we have seen so many examples where that just hasn't worked out which i think speaks precisely to the point you just made um yeah. where people are like i'm not used to coming to brand x i'm used to coming to brand x for skis i'm not used to coming to brand x for outerwear and um yeah you know <clears throat> and so yeah i i um I think this is going to be an interesting one to watch with Rosignol. The one thing I, I found myself thinking of, which is probably a really stupid question, but you know, in thinking about the tremendous amount of success that Rosignol has had with like the Soul Seven, yeah, uh, which is just simply is. I mean, it's a fact. I mean, so many people yep. have really, really, really enjoyed that ski, um, and. I kind of found myself thinking, like, what mountain bike is the equivalent of the Rosignol Soul Seven? And like, Ooh. could could Rosignol basically reproduce that kind of success? Like, either I, because either the sort of Soul Seven of mountain bikes currently exists, or yeah. this is something that if I was in Rosignol's shoes, I'd sure as hell be interested in trying to come up with that sort of equivalent. And I don't know, as a, as a bike yeah, guy yourself. Yeah, but if I were what, trying to do that, I'd also call my bikes the soul something, not the whatever they're calling it. Um, the Alltrack. Yeah, they're the, the Alltrack. The, the Alltracks. Um, well, answer, what's, as a bike guy, what, what's, your, what's your best guess for... What's your best answer to the question? What's the Soul Seven of mountain bikes? Oh, that's tough. Um, that's really tough. See, evidence that Rosignol's got an opening here. Not really evidence. Yeah, it might just be I evidence just, that it's late. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm trying to separate my feelings about the ski for the Soul like the ski of the Soul Seven for how the Soul Seven's done commercially. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, Oh boy. The answer would be wouldn't the answer be something I specialized from, in enduro? Not an enduro. Specialized The answer wouldn't the answer be okay, something from yeah, Specialized I mean, or Santa Cruz? Santa and probably not Santa Cruz. It's a right. specialized tracker. Okay, it it's the Giant Trance. Okay. There we go. Giant Trance. Okay. I Which is a great bike. I don't. Yeah, I don't have anywhere to go with that. You've answered my question, but it sounds like maybe there's an opening there. And I and I don't think yeah, that, but I don't it, think it that undermines. Sound like they're trying to like if I like if I were trying to go for that opening, I would I'd try and leverage the sole name, which has so much brand equity. Only to skiers. Well, but if you're in France, there's no such thing as somebody who doesn't ski. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. I don't know. The, well, we're, we're now, maybe we're now... a better way of answering your question is that the sole seven of bikes is fat tires. But um, The sole seven of bikes is fat tires? Or like plus size tires. No, that's not true. That's a hundred percent true. Hmm. 
it makes it easier and reduces the top end. You can cut that out, but um, <laughs> I don't want to cut that out. Oh, well, shit. Um, no, I mean, <laughs> I might cut all sol- of this out, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's been an hour and twenty three minutes. Oh fuck, really? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, like the the Soul Seven has sold so well because it's it's so accessible for. Yep. I'll, I'll cut to the chase, intermediate skiers, right? It makes intermediate skiers be able to do things they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. It's not a great ski for people who are really pushing the ski hard. Except, if you look at plus except, size. Except unless you are, because this is always my caveat and correction to this conversation. Our reviewer, yep. Jason Hutchins, who mm-hmm. is a phenomenal skier, but he yep. is he is far more of a finesse skier. He he regards big heavy skis with metal as cheater skis for people who can't ski. And that's like that's overstating it slightly, but okay. I I love that that's like his take on that. He's like, "Dude, I don't need your heavy metal ski. I can provide that stability because I'm a good enough athlete and I can and if Jason hears this, he's going to be like so mad at me cuz this is he's like the most <laughs> humble guy ever. But like this has really flipped things for me. Like Jason can push a soul seven so much harder than 99% of people will go push that quote unquote, like more badass ski. Yeah. Because he's like, he doesn't need the training wheels. And I, and I love that. Like that really sort of helped me and switched up, you know, um, thought of like, great, you can handle a really stiff, heavy ski. So what? training wheels so different interesting i, I, yeah. I kind of see it the other way around but i i do see where he's coming from yeah I, but so i personally so to me, am not in that boat no but, i'm not either i that's why i like yeah. heavy that's why i like heavy stiff skis like give me the training wheels if i'm gonna go ski really hard and really fast but yeah so to me it's like yeah it the soul seven did open up um did make life easier i think for intermediate skiers but I think you can then also leapfrog with that ski and go to exceptionally good skiers, very well-balanced skiers, um, who just don't need the training wheels of a heavy metal stiff ski. And it's like, personally, I want those training wheels. Makes it well, easier to that, go real fast. That doesn't get around the problems of too much, oh boy, too much rock or too much taper and not enough stiffness in the right places. Um but I'm not opinionated, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> no one's listening at this point anyway. We've gone, yeah, we've gone too long, so it's okay. We're safe. I guess my comparison was like if you look at, at most people that are skiing yeah. the Soul 7s, they are like – it's great that just Jason Hutchins can push that ski really hard. I can't. I consider myself a pretty high-level skier. I think you feel the same way. Um, but – that ski opens up possibilities to intermediates that were were really not possibilities to them before, and it opens up terrain and a way of skiing to them that they've they've never experienced before. And I think plus size tires are doing very much the same thing in in mountain biking, where you get more grip. Um, it's a more forgiving ride, and you can start riding terrain that you wouldn't have ridden previously. 
when I ride a plus size bike, I don't like the fact that there's more air in my tires so that I like more of my suspension is coming from the tires, which yeah. is undamped and, and uncontrolled. Um, I get a little bit more sort of tire roll, um, when I'm going to corners hard and that, that makes me uncomfortable where it's the same things like the grips great, but it's, it's not as controlled and, um, and, and that's why I don't ride a plus size bike and that's yeah. why I don't ski a soul seven. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm about to make a lot of people angry. Maybe. Yeah. Um, that's okay. Um, no, but it's interesting. And I mean, that is honestly the question that I've been kind of, uh, trying to think through in my head. And I, and I think the, I think your answer is, um, a compelling one. Um, plus sized. Um, yeah, and we'll just, s- just get that in front of Noah and, and watch him cringe, but yeah. Noah? No, Noah will agree with you. Well, good, because yeah, Noah think, knows who you're talking about, so yeah, so I I'm think, right. I, I like think. that. <laughs> so I'm right. I'm, now I'm definitely editing that out, because I don't want, I don't want to hear, I don't want Noah to know that, like, it, he, that, that he now is holding that kind of weight or authority, um authority yeah that's that's gonna make all the arguments i have with noah harder on all kinds of other (laughs) issues so um well hey um i think we should wrap up um we covered a lot of territory here and um and it is very late um which i somehow is. is fitting but uh yeah um it's always good to talk and and it it sort of has been a while since we've um, really checked in. So I'm glad we had this opportunity to do it. Um, once again, I, I'm, I am grateful that, uh, we kicked off this, this whole, uh, podcast series, um, with you and that you were, we were, you were able to be back on for number 50. Um, yeah. And I know you got a lot going on by the way, too. I mean, you're leaving right in, um, Friday, sometime Friday, you're headed to New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, okay. uh, I've got about 36 hours before we fly, so <laughs> it's 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 been an exciting week with with getting protos ready for for F19 stuff. Um, but I mean, in a really good way. I mean, we're we're further ahead than we've ever been with with probably better direction at this time of year than we've ever had before. And you know, going to New Zealand's hardly a hardship. So yeah, um, yeah I'm I'm really excited. Really, really excited. How do you know how many days you're going to be on snow down there? Um, I will be testing on snow officially for five or six days. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I'll be staying down there with, uh, Peter Brigham, who's another one of our engineers (laughs) and Adam Rosito, who's uh, our product line manager for another five days, um, sort of vacation time. Um, and we, we may be on snow for some of those days, but, um, I think it's, it's going to be more just kind of checking out the, the South Island. And, um, I've got a good friend from, from engineering school that's living down there now. And I know Peter's got a friend living down there. So kind of splitting the difference between, I think it'll be more touring than, you know, lift access to terrain, um, sort of cross between touring and, uh, and being tourists so cool sounds good um 
Well, excellent. Well, hey, thank you. Appreciate the time and the conversation, and um, good luck down in New Zealand. Thanks, man. It's it's always good to talk. Yeah. All right. You take care. All right. Adios. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Many thanks to Jed Yeiser for the late night conversation and to our still strikingly handsome audio engineer, even after 50 episodes, Justin Bob. Justin, it has been fun and it has been hard and at times it has been fully nutso producing these things. But I'm proud that you and I, aka Team Junk Show, has managed to put out 50 of these podcasts and I'm extremely excited about the next 50. And thanks to every single one of our guests on the podcast. It's a pretty freaking remarkable group of people we've had on, and we are excited to keep growing this thing bigger and bigger. Till next time, check out what we're up to at blisterreview.com, and we will talk to you next week.